2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? With regard to Chen's newsletter, you do need to put your name on a waiting list, and then uh, Chen will accept a certain number of new subscribers at the beginning of the next calendar quarter. To sign up for Chen's letter or my letter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, go to miningstocks.com. Uh, or you can call our office uh, in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426 during normal work hours in New York City. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to encourage you to continue sending your questions along to Taylor at gmail.com also want to thank our sponsors for making today's show economically viable. They are Carlisle Goldfields, RN Resources, and Cornerstone Capital Resources. Well, today's show I've titled, If You Thought the Vietnam War Was Over, Think Again. James Perloff returns to talk about Chapter 5 and Chapter 6 of his book, Truth is a Lonely Warrior. In Chapter 5, James will explain how the goal of the ruling elite was in fact not about stopping countries from falling like dominoes into the hands of the communists, but rather to destroy and destabilize the existing order towards a longer-term goal of creating a one-world government. It reminds me of the fact that the Fabian Socialist of London, uh, as uh, we learn from uh, various uh, various guests on this show: uh, the John Mar- Maynard Keynes, Bernard Shaw, more recently Tony Blair were members of the Fabian Socialist, and the Fabian Socialist ideologically had no difference with the Soviet Marxists. The only difference was how to get there. The uh, the Soviets wanted to do it through a barrel of a gun. The Fabians said, said, well, no, let's take our time, a more peaceful approach of education or indoctrination of the masses so that they will just willingly go into the arms of a communist dictatorship. And that, my friends, is where I think we are headed. The Fabians uh, were actually quite open about their goals in many ways, if you read between the lines. And they looked at their uh, modus operandi as being that of uh, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. Through the promises of something for nothing made by our politicians, uh, and that was made possible certainly by the demolition of the gold standard, um, the world order that existed since Bretton Woods in 1944, I believe, is quickly drawing to a close now, unfortunately. Based on many factors, I believe that major events before the end of this year are likely to make that fact clear. It's likely to be clear to more and more people that the good times that we've enjoyed for generations in America is quickly coming to an end. So in the next segment of today's show, James will talk about how the leaders of our country were actually working in alliance with the communists and not against them, as both sides were, and I'm guessing still are, looking to consolidate power and build a one-world government. I think that's very, very clear through the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's really what is at stake there. James uh, will then, in Chapter 7, uh, in his book, Truth is a Lon- Lonely Warrior, discuss uh, what we can learn from the Vietnam conflict about how the ruling elite Are seeking to destroy the United States as well as the sovereignty of all governments around the world, in order to impose their one-world government. Meantime, there does seem to be some major tectonic shifts emerging in the world's financial markets, which I believe is part and partial of this grand scheme of establishing a one-world government. Certainly, uh, as we talked to our friend uh, Mike Oliver last week, uh, he is very convinced that the equity markets are getting ready for a. major decline, uh, while gold and silver is looking for a major increase in the not-too-distant future. He would also be turning quite bearish on the dollar. I think you can expect increasing destabilization in many countries as the global economy starts to plunge lower. I think from an investment point of view, from my own perspective as an American, when it comes to investing in gold mining companies, you will want to be in the safest jurisdictions possible. I'm not sure that there will be any jurisdiction that is completely safe but for now at least canada the united states and places like australia and new zealand appear okay mexico and peru for now may be okay as well although i know my friend david jensen is becoming increasingly worried about mexico by the way this week in my newsletter i am writing about a new public company called BitGold, which just this last week announced the merger with gold money I would urge caution on all of you who may have read an article by Paul Tustain, the CEO and competitor of gold money, namely Bullion Vault. Paul wrote an article in May 27th that is not only self-serving and disparaging of gold money and bit gold, I should say, but is faulty in its analysis of bit gold and gold money. He is clearly trying to scare people out of gold money and out of uh, bit gold and into his own firm bullion vault. I want to remind you also uh, that bullion vault is affiliated with the World Gold Council which is in fact no friend of gold at all. I would call the World Gold Council actually the anti-world gold council because its propaganda is to drive the price of gold down by championing it as jewelry rather than as gold uh, for what its real purpose is, that being money. Keep in mind that the lower the price of gold goes the more gold goes into jewelry by contrast when the price of gold rises which is favorable to the mining companies and favorable to you and i as holders of gold less gold then goes into jewelry so it's really a self-defeating purpose to try to promote gold as jewelry but that's what the world gold council does and keep in mind also that the Rothschilds are behind the World Gold Council uh, and, as such, have a vested interest in keeping as many people as possible in the dark with regard to gold's primary reason for existing, that being money. So I would urge you to read what I write uh, in my newsletter this week. Also, check out James Turk's latest missives as well as Roy Sebeck, the CEO of Bitgold. And I do expect to have both those gentlemen on a radio show in the near future, Perhaps as early as next week on my website to do a podcast there, but on the radio show also sometime in the near future. Meantime, from a technical point of view, I continue to think gold is building a strong base from which it should rise dramatically higher during the second half of this year. Same holds true for silver, but even more so. And in my newsletter this week, I am also writing about Great Panther. That's a Mexican silver producer that is growing its production dramatically. At the same time, its profit margins are improving. And you can go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, for, to sign up for my newsletter, Jay Tuller's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. We do have to go to break now, but don't go away because when I come back, I will be talking with James Perloff about how the Vietnam War, in effect, has never ended it was actually used as a means for furthering the move by a ruling elite towards the establishment of a one-world government. Don't go away. I'll be right back with James Perloff.
1: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
0: Where infrastructure meets grade. Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada, and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Orico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pitable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it, and the project is expected to be in mineable reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake.
3: million.
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times Into Good Times. I am delighted to have with me, once again, James Perloff. James is a prolific writer whose uh, latest book is the topic of a monthly discussion on this show. Uh, You can go to uh, jamesperloff.com to buy his books. Uh, The one that we want to talk to James about this month and every month, uh, for the next several months at least, is Truth is a Lonely Warrior. And I would uh, really encourage you to listen to the first two discussions that we've had with James Perloff. And, of course, encourage you to buy the book, uh, because we can only cover a portion of the material, even though we are having extensive discussions on Truth as a Lonely Word," There's so much material there that's so worthwhile uh, understanding and getting into. The first discussion that we had, uh, Chapter 1, uh, was titled, Six wars, and chapter two was titled The Powers That Be. We had that discussion a few, a few uh, several months back. I think it was in March. What we learned from our first discussions was that the last six major wars, uh, for those last six major wars, false flags were instituted in order to get the American people to support those wars. False flags were set up, which uh, invited our perceived enemies to wage war against the United States. Uh, So, for example, uh, Roosevelt set up our Navy in harm's way uh, of the Japanese to ensure that they would hit our ships at Pearl Harbor. And once Americans uh, felt that we were attacked uh, by the Japanese, they were uh, willing to go into war. In fact, up to that point in time, as I recall reading, only about 10% or less than 10% of the American public wanted us to get involved in the war, uh, the uh, Second World War. But in fact, afterwards, it was overwhelming support for America's involvement once we were struck. Well, that was just one example. James discussed false flags to get American uh, support for the Spanish-American War, uh, World War I, the Korean War the Vietnam War, and most recently the Iraq War in 2003. In Chapter 2, James outlined uh, who the ruling elite are who engineered these false flags to con the American people into supporting all of these wars. A discussion of Chapters 1 and 2 is available at J. Taylor Media uh, at that website. Uh, You can also go back to Voice America at my page at Voice America Business Channel to listen to those archive sites, uh, those archive uh, podcasts as well. On April 7th uh, show, we began discussion of Chapter 3, titled The Devil as Banker, and Chapter 4, How the Cartel Has Run America. But given the importance of those two chapters, and I, I just felt that we didn't adequately cover them, we didn't spend enough time in uh, covering them as we should have, James and I devoted May 5th. Uh, that show to a more thorough discussion of those two chapters once again. Chapters 3 and 4 identified the powers behind the throne. In in other words, it puts names to major banking families that are waging war against the very common uh, people that the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, is intended to protect. Chapters 3 and 4, I believe, are very important because they go to the very heart of our ongoing loss of freedom and the ongoing trend towards enslavement of the masses. The ruling elite and the organizations that fund uh, the elite, uh, which in essence offers bribes to scholars to define truth uh, as the elite wish to shape it, well they operate out of view of most of the public, I would say virtually all of the public, but they use the major media and think tanks which they fund for their own propaganda purposes. Since we are still free, at least for now to examine their activities objectively on the internet i have chosen to do so as uh, have many other guests uh james perloff is joining me today and many other guests on my radio show as well not the least uh i would say though james perloff probably as much as anyone we have really delved into details of what is uh, in recent american history and how that has impacted our lives today truth is a lonely warrior uh, today we want to talk about chapter five, uh, it's titled Vietnam, and then chapter six is titled The Plan Today. Uh, if Vietnam had actually put an end to uh, America's evil foreign policy by putting Americans uh, well to putting us back in sync with the Constitution James would have, would have had uh, probably had no reason to write Truth as a Lonely Warrior. But now uh, that in fact has not been the case unfortunately Uh, I hope to explore with James now how the mainstream characterization of Vietnam actually uh, was really a hoax and uh, how our country is continuing to engage in one Vietnam kind of a war after another and why that is important to your future in mind. Thank you very much, James, for joining me again. Jay, uh, the thanks are all mine. It's really good to have you uh, with me because uh, your book, uh, truth is a Lonely Warrior is a must-read, I think, if, uh, for anybody that really cares about our country uh, and cares uh, to know what the truth is. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the history of Vietnam for the United States, you know, uh, how the United States got involved in it, uh, what pretenses were used to get us into that war?
4: Well, uh, the history of, uh, of Vietnam really goes back uh, to World War II. Uh, Actually, you could say, since we're talking about the fight against communism, you could say it went back to the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 and the funding of that by uh, Western bankers such as the Warburgs and the Rothschilds and Kuhn Loeb. But uh, World War II, the United States was fighting a two-front war in Asia and in Europe, and our ally, uh, a term I use guardedly, the Soviet Union was fighting a one-front war against Germany. And at the Tehran and Yalta Conferences, the big three conferences, 1943, 1945, President Roosevelt asked Joseph Stalin, the dictator of the Soviet Union, if he would join the Pacific War and fight Japan. And Stalin said he would do that, but only on the condition that America supply him with all the equipment he'd need, all the the vehicles and all the weapons. And so Roosevelt agreed, and we sent 600 shiploads, of uh, lend-lease supplies and munitions to to uh, Stalin specifically expressly for the purpose of fighting Japan mm-hmm. but Stalin was very clever he waited until Japan was beaten uh, he didn't enter the Asian war until five days before Japan surrendered uh, the atomic bomb had already pounded uh, Hiroshima
2: mm-hmm.
4: so uh, he, he was able to go in and uh, uh, he brought his American lend-lease supplies and as well as uh, the Japanese munitions, which he was allowed to uh, accept the surrender of in China, he turned them over to Mao Zedong, mm-hmm. and that led in turn to the communizing of the entire uh, country of, of China mm-hmm. by 1949, uh, and of course uh, we also gave Stalin control of North Korea on the, on the pretext that he was our ally helping win the Pacific War, it thus, thus uh, uh, enabling the Korean War. Uh, completely unnecessary, totally artificial. But Vietnam was next on the on the on the uh, spots of uh, of communist expansion. Mm-hmm.
2: All right, so that's that's a little history there. Uh, the, it, it, it seems to me. Uh, that in fact, uh, yeah, I guess I guess geopolitics gets very complicated, which is probably one of the reasons that uh, Washington suggested we never get involved in foreign involvements. But uh, President Washington, that is, you know, you cite evidence that there was a secret deal between President Roosevelt, and I guess basically you just uh, covered that. Then in, in 1942, regarding Vietnam, I guess I guess you just mentioned that. Then that was in 1942, right?
4: Uh, Well, in 1943, the Tehran Conference, uh, Stalin said that uh, he was denouncing France, saying there were a bunch of collaborationists, and he said they should not get Indochina back, which uh, would include Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos, after the war. Uh, You know, uh, Indochina, of course, had been a uh, French colony, had been Mm -hmm. colonized by them. And Roosevelt said he was 100% in agreement, and so it became the policy of our government and the policy of the Department of State to uh, pressure France to leave uh, into China, that pressure only led up during the Korean War. But when that end, the Korean War ended in fifty three, uh, full force we went again, pushing the French to leave uh, Vietnam. hmm. But we we really um, it seems as though somewhere back there, then
2: we started to really actually support Ho Chi Minh, Ho Chi Minh which of course was was the enemy uh, during the Vietnam War. How did that come about?
4: Well, that's uh, quite an interesting. Uh, bit of history, you know, in 1945, we were supporting Ho Chi Minh. In 1945, we sent the OSS into Vietnam, and on, on my website, com we have been, uh, a blog post uh, extensive on, on the war in Vietnam, and I, uh, the background to it, and I have a, a photo there um, showing uh, beaming American OSS officers with General Giop, uh, who later would slaughter American troops, and a uh, beaming Ho Chi Minh, and they were training and arming ho chi minh's forces now the the public pretext was it was to fight japan but in the summer of 45 japan was already beaten there was no need to train and arm a communist army in north vietnam but that's what we did and the real purpose was to drive out the french and of course uh just as stalin was troops were allowed to accept the surrender of japanese munitions and in china ho chi minh was given uh those uh, surrendered Japanese munitions in, um, in Indochina, which he then used to fight the French.
2: And, it, you know, I understand that basically our our news media really sort of worshipped Ho Chi Minh. Uh, they compared him to George Washington even. Do you have any idea why America, which supposedly, you know, I mean, it just seems so contradictory to the uh, to the notion of what America is supposed to be about, at least what our Constitution said we were about, that you would support a dictator like that, and how could they see a Ho Chi Minh as a George Washington?
4: Well, it was Harold Isaacs of Newsweek who, who called him that, but this is, a, this is a pattern that has repeated itself throughout history. If you go back to uh, the days when uh, the nationalists and the communists were fighting in China in the late 1940s, uh, Mao Zedong was portrayed as what they called an agrarian reformer. It was denied that he was communist. And a great book on that is uh, While well, You Slept by John T. Flynn. He talks about the media coverage. But if you take it up uh, take it up to Castro in uh, Cuba. I was going uh, to say, 1950s. yes. Harold uh, H- Matthews of the New York Times had these front page uh, pieces uh, describing him as a great Democrat. and Ed Sullivan, you can see the clip on YouTube of Ed Sullivan saying what a fine young man he is. He's the George Washington of Cuba. Of Cuba, and then he had Soviet missiles pointed at us. Three years later, you know, but they did this with Harold uh, Isaac's news. Met with Ho Chi Minh, he was described as a great democrat. But we've been doing this throughout our history. It's, it's, it's part of a continuing pattern, and one that, unfortunately, without an alternative media like yours to turn to, people had no way of catching on to the truth.
2: I think it's continuing. I, I think we talked to Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, and, and get the same sort of rhyme and rhythm going on here. But I remember very clearly. Uh, James, I remember very clearly as a sixth grader hearing my sixth grade teacher, uh, Mr. Kirchhoff,er talking about uh, exactly in those terms. He probably was reading the very same media that suggested that uh, uh, the Castro was a fine person, was going to really turn things uh, turn things out better for the people. I mean, it wasn't as if Batista, the fr- previous leader, was uh, was anything uh, to to really uh, to really you know be praiseworthy for uh, certainly. Uh, but then, when you think about it, you know, we, you and I have just been talking about this for the last couple of months or so, what's going on in American foreign policy, but it seems as though we're constantly getting involved, many times unseating uh, elected governments, and putting in rough dictators that are against the people, but somehow provide uh, some, I guess, large corporate interests perhaps, to, to reign over various countries. But anyway, getting back to Vietnam, in 1954, Ho Chi Minh's forces... Uh, they surrounded, uh, hemmed in the French troops, and I, as I understand it from your book, the the French w- were looking to America for some help, to help protect them, but uh, we weren't too concerned about that. We weren't too concerned about the French, where we were... What, what, can you explain that bit of history to us? You might have just touched on it a moment ago, I guess, perhaps, but uh, go
4: ahead. Oh, well, what I was specifically referring to in that uh, context was uh, Dien Bien Phu. That was where uh, they had the decisive battle for the French in Indochina, and they were surrounded by uh, General Jop's uh, troops and uh, were getting pounded. And it was uh, largely a battle of attrition. The, uh, the communists had a heavy artillery, that they, uh, most of which they'd gotten from, uh, from Mao Zedong in China, and uh, the French asked the United States if we would just make a two-hour aircraft carrier strike, and that would have taken out the artillery and could have saved them at the end, Bien Phu, and the United States refused. All right, well, I mean, why? Well, because, as uh, we said uh, earlier, it had been our policy since the Tehran Conference to uh, have the French leave into China. I should mention, this is interesting, uh, Hilaire de Berrier, who was uh, uh, in the OSS and became an intelligence specialist uh, for the public, he had his own newsletter out of Monaco from 1958, to 2001, he pointed out that all the State Department people who were working on the Indochina desk, after the France after after France left Indochina, they were transferred to the Algeria desk and started pressuring France to leave Algeria because part of this whole international oligarchy's plan was to reduce countries like Spain and France and England from empires and reduce them essentially to provinces of the European Union, because we're really looking at a long-term plan unfolding. But this was certainly a part of it, was to weaken the nations of Europe by disconnecting them from their colonies.
2: That's very interesting. When, when was uh, Vietnam divided, from, uh, divided North and South?
4: Well, this was another uh, bad uh, portent when uh, you divide a, or divide a country. That was the uh, Geneva Conference of 1954, and they were dividing it as much as they had uh, uh, Korea, which then, of course, led to the Korean War, and uh, uh, North Vietnam was given to Ho Chi Minh and the Communists, and the South was very briefly given to Emperor Bao Dai, uh, and the idea was that uh, both sides would hold elections, and of course, the Communists never held elections, and uh, Bao Dai was uh, compelled to give his uh, the South over to uh, Ngo Dinh Diem, uh, who held a rigged election.
2: Yeah, D.M. Uh, I, I remember the name, of course, as a young man during Vietnam, the early days of Vietnam. Uh, so the so the U.S. refused to help France, and, and so I guess that then paved the way for the U.S. to sneak in there, huh?
4: Well, without the French as a bastion against communism, uh, you know, the public pretext was, of course, to stop the dominoes from falling. Yes. The problem was that our uh, in point of fact, despite their public pronouncements, our leaders were not interested in a victorious uh, battle against communism. Well, it would seem so. I mean, we were just uh, honky-dory with Ho Chi
2: Minh and seemingly Mao Zedong and Stalin. I mean, these were the, not we, the people, but certainly the people that run our country, the powers behind the throne, were, right?
4: Well, later on, uh, we'll cover a later chapter where I, I talk about this... Um, uh, unpublicized alliance that's occurred for many decades between capitalists and communists. You know, uh, David Rockefeller had, <laughs> during the Cold War, He has, his jet had private landing rights in Moscow. It's true. Just you know, read Joseph Finder's book, Red Carpet, about all the aid that poured into the Soviet Union. And of course, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski back in 1961 was publishing articles in Foreign Affairs, the Journal of the Council on Foreign Relations, calling for increased trade with the Soviet bloc, which of course then turned that trade into into weapons and munitions and uh, and goods for uh, for North Vietnam during our war. That's
2: incredible. So Rockefeller could just uh, take his private jet and fly into Moscow anytime he wanted, huh?
4: Well, yeah. In fact, some people say uh, it was interesting that after he flew there in 64, shortly after that, Khrushchev was deposed, and a lot of people think that Rockefeller gave the order. Can't that's, be proven.
2: Yeah, that's incredible. Um, well, I guess, you know, if you have the money, you have the power, probably. um can you talk a little bit? Uh, speaking of the Council of Foreign Relations, which was, you know, heavily dominated by David Rockefeller and and and, and those folks, um, can you talk about the the role of the CIA and the Council of Foreign Relations activist Colonel Edward Lansdale? Talk about the role that he played in aiding and abetting the communists in Vietnam, uh, and putting in power corrupt leaders in Vietnam, then going on forward into through the time. I think you mentioned DM. Was
4: DM put in there by these guys? Mm-hmm. That's right. Diem was living in America in the early nineteen fifties, and he became the darling of the Rockefellers. He was; uh, they gave him a luncheon at their estate, and he gave a speech at the Council on Foreign Relations. And uh, 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 you have to say that after uh, removing the um, after removing the the French and uh, dividing the country, our next step was to get rid of the emperor, which is Bao Dai. And this is actually very significant because. Uh, Uh, a lot of Americans don't get this we've been schooled to hate monarchies and think of how bad they are but actually monarchies are inherently unifying because a monarch is to be loyal to his entire people when we replace that whether it's with a a communist revolution or what we call democracy in our American diplomats would demand democracy. Democracy tends to be inherently divisive because it divides a country into, into different parties. Sure. In this case, we insisted that Bao Dai step down and here's what he said. I'll give you a direct quote. He said, quote, if your country had given me one-one-thousandth of the sum they spent to depose me, I could have won that war, uh, unquote, meaning the Vietnam War, that people would have rallied around them and instead we insisted that they... In South Vietnam, except um, Ngô Dinh Diệm as their uh, as their president, there was a rigged election. He claimed ninety eight percent of the people voted for him, but they hated him. He was from the north, uh, not the south. He was a he was a, a Catholic, whereas most of the population was Buddhist. Yes, but uh, he was very oppressive. And Lansdale, uh, you asking about Lan- Lansdale was with the CIA and Council on Foreign Relations, and he wanted to consolidate. Uh, Nguyen Dinh Diem's power, and there were actually were these indigenous groups in Vietnam which were very anti-communist. This included uh, some religious sects, the uh, Cao Dai sect and the Hua Hao sect, and there was also uh, a, a virtual warlord named Luvin Vien. He had a private army, and these guys would wipe out the communists whenever they went up against them, but they were all disarmed uh, under uh, the supervision of uh, Lansdale using the uh, South Vietnamese army of uh, Ngo Dinh Diem. So we actually neutralized the anti-communist forces that were indigenous in South Vietnam, and then uh, Diem's own army turned on him, deposed him, and assassinated him. So we just created a complete vacuum into which uh, the communist forces of Ho Chi Minh then uh, invaded into the South. Boy, it just sounds so reminiscent of what's going
2: on more recently in the Middle East. But, you know, I remember so clearly now as a young man, I remember seeing uh, you know, news reports of these Buddhists burning themselves alive in protest against DM. So I mean it was really a, an outside power and forces that went into Vietnam and uh, forced against the will of the people, uh, a, a foreign power, a foreign, I mean it just seems so evil, I don't, it just, it's just horrible. I, I don't know, it's just the whole story as I say just seems so reminiscent of what's going on now in the Middle East and the more we get involved in, the more chaotic Uh, The political and economic landscape gets in the Middle East, but this was, it seems like almost the design is to create chaos and from chaos then I guess you can hope, they they hope to gain control is that the modus operandi?
4: Well certainly it's the exact opposite of what George Washington warned against, he said you should have a non-interventionist, avoid foreign entanglements, but we have been imposing our will, or I should say the, uh, the uh, elitist oligarchy that controls American foreign policy has been imposing its will on foreign uh, countries to restructure the world, with our ultimate intention, of course, being uh, world government.
2: You know, and again, um, you, you, you mentioned in your book that, you know, we, it didn't take long uh, to come out the victors in World War II. I mean, some argue that we didn't even need to use the uh, the nuclear war to do that. uh, The (laughs) the nuclear bomb. We we were in fact uh, had the war won, but in fact that was a statement for the United States to let everybody know who was in charge after that. But um, uh, but you point out in your book that it took 14 years. We were in Vietnam 14 years, and we'd have been there a lot longer if there wasn't an uprising, I suppose. But can you talk about a few of the strategic omissions that kept us really? I mean, it seems as though the the hands were tied behind the back. I mean, if, if you're in a war, go in it to win it, you would think, right? Uh, but I'm thinking a, a very interesting, uh, remark and, uh, information that you had there about the Ho Chi Minh trail and how, in fact, uh, our, our military people were not really allowed to, to be come out as victors there.
4: Oh, well, uh, we fought this war completely differently. Korea and Vietnam were not like other wars we had fought. And, uh, World War II, we fought to win, uh, but in uh, Vietnam, we were fighting under completely different conditions. The Ho Chi Minh Trail, the pilots were under restriction. You couldn't bomb anything more than 200 yards off the trail. And uh, of course, that's ridiculous. Uh, the the, the uh, Viet Cong, uh, the Vietnamese uh, trucks would simply pull off the trail. They'd be forewarned by radar that the planes were coming mm-hmm. and then just get back on the trail. And uh, it's interesting, there was an author named Lloyd Mallon. And in 1968, he interviewed a, a dozen retired high-ranking U.S. military officers. They all agreed the Vietnam War could be won in weeks or months uh, at the most. We had the power to do that. Um, it, it specifically regarding the, Vietnam, the uh, Ho Chi Minh Trail, they said uh, the uh, bombing; those bombings are not going to stop the flow of supplies to the Viet Cong in the South. You need to block it. You know, just put Marines on the on the mountain passes overlooking the trail. That would stop it. But uh, uh, none, none such sensible advice was followed by Washington.
2: I mean, why? Why? I mean, it just seems it just seems so insane. Either, uh, unless again, there's a bigger picture here. I guess it's about uh, it's about control, and um, I guess it's about trying to gain dominance. Uh, but but you would think by winning a war, you would then have control. Uh, help me understand what the reasoning is behind this ruling elite. Why would, they, why would they not want to win a war?
4: Well, Jay, the answer to that, I think, is to understand that the objectives uh, of a war sometimes are not contained within the country in which the war is being fought. For example, in Korea, uh, you know, you had these bloody battles for uh, possession of a hill uh, with the control passing back and forth between the Allied forces and the Communist forces. But the uh, ruling elite were not interested in who won what hill. They were interested in using the Korean War to validate the United Nations, whose peacekeeping credentials and abilities had been called into question by patriotic American Congress. That was the purpose of the war, as well as bypassing uh, the Constitution. And that was the first war we fought without a declaration of war, of course. Uh, Harry Truman didn't even bother to consult the Congress because we're now part of the U.N. And uh, we're now suffering the... uh, uh, the effects of being under its mandate instead of our constitution but in vietnam i think again the objectives primarily lay outside of vietnam and i think they were primarily dragging out this war you know the the to create changes here at home and uh again uh we we defeated the japanese and the germans in just three and a half years two very powerful military empires we can't beat. little north vietnam in 14 years that doesn't make sense if you look at the restrictions you know we couldn't uh bomb a surface-to-air missile launch site until it was fully operational. Uh, we couldn't bomb a, a fighter plane a mig if it was on the ground. you I know mean, that's not how we fought in, in, uh, in uh, World War II World War II if you saw something on the ground you fired at it yeah all fought, of it, yeah if we fought yeah if we fought World War II like in, in Vietnam we' would have lost World War two. It's two completely different methodologies.
2: I mean the old saying is all is fair in in, in love and war. Uh, but but this war apparently uh, again uh, it's something called the rules of engagement that uh, was was passed by was it the U- U.S. Congress that passed that or was it the Johnson administration that imposed that uh, on uh, on um, on our on our military efforts
4: there? Oh no, Congress was not even aware of it. It wasn't uh, uh, made public until uh, 1985, I believe huh. it was, when Barry Goldwater published them uh, took, 20, took up 26 pages in the Congressional Record.
2: Wow. So I mean, I, 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 can you talk a little bit about the prosecution again? Again, Defense Secretary. We had all these people that were in the government that seemed to be so much I- in favor of uh, of the enemy to a great extent. I mean, there was a Robert Robert McNamara, of course. He was the Secretary of Defense during the Rules of Engagement. I guess that was his deal. That's what he that it wasn't the Congress. It was uh, Robert McNamara, the, Des- uh, the Secretary of Defense. Uh, there was an amazing quote also from a book written by Walter Rostow, who advised. President Kennedy to commit troops into Vietnam in 1961. Uh, I'm wondering if you could share that quote from Rostow, perhaps. I think it reveals the hidden agenda, perhaps. Uh, maybe this is sort of getting to what this seemingly ridiculous behavior is all about, but page 63 and 64 of your book, there's a quote there. Would you would you care to, to pass that along to our listeners?
4: Yeah, Rostow wrote this in 1960, uh, which is one year before he gave uh, the advice to President Kennedy to send troops to Vietnam, which was actually the initiation of, uh, of uh, large numbers of American troops in Vietnam, but he said this quote, "It is a legitimate American national objective to see removed from all nations, including the United States, the right to use substantial military force to pursue their own interests since this right is the root of national sovereignty." It is therefore an American interest to see an end to nationhood wow. as it has been historically defined, "Unquote," Walt well, Rostow. Now, that uh, very much embodies the viewpoint of the Council on Foreign Relations, which a member. But the, re- the reason I wanted to bring this up is that Rostow, for, for, for advising Johnson and Kennedy on Vietnam, he was called a hawk. What I'm trying to point out here, uh, he was not an Archie Bunker... Did we we were—I was a hippie back then. We were supposed to believe that the guys behind the wall were these Archie Bunker flag waving patriotic. He was right, not patriotic, right. and he was nor was he anti communist. You know, his father had been a Marxist revolutionary in Russia. Two of his aunts belonged to the U.S. Communist Party. And his brother was uh, Eugene Debs Rostow, named for the Socialist Party leader. Wow. So this, this guy's not resonating with anti-communism, but he's, he's, he's the one who told Kennedy to send troops to Vietnam. Yeah, And then he was labeled as a, as a
2: hawk. In fact, it was exactly the opposite. And uh, prosecuting a war with your hands tied behind your back, uh, Secretary uh, McNamara. Uh, also, uh, William P. Bundy, Assistant Secretary of State, uh, for the Far East, played. In, uh, you talk a little bit about his role that he played in escalating the Vietnam War, uh, and his love of the communist ideology as well. I mean, it just seems like there's so many of these guys. But you did have something. Would you care to comment just briefly on, on, on Bundy and his and his views?
4: Uh, Bundy was uh, important to the conversation because he was the one who drafted the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, ah. and he he drafted it before the Tonkin Gulf incident took place. So you know that. They were simply, everybody today knows, of course, that the Tonkin Gulf incident did not happen. I quote uh, Congressional Medal of Honor, winner James Stockdale, who was a pilot in the Tonkin Gulf, on that in my book. But uh, you can even go onto YouTube see the guys on the destroyers who admit that there were no attacks. Uh, but uh, he was the one who drafted the Tonkin Gulf Resolution Bundy, and he was Skull and Bones, Council for Relations, Committee of 300, and after he left the Defense Department... He was appointed the editor of Foreign Affairs by David Rockefeller, Foreign wow. Affairs, the Journal of the Council of Foreign Relations, opposing American sovereignty. But as far as his his uh, uh, views on communism, you go back to the 1950s, he was the head of the Alger Hiss Defense Fund, you know, wow. of course, the notorious Soviet spy. And so obviously, if you're an anti-communist, you don't uh, go about defending uh, Soviet uh, agents and spies. So again, like Rostow, the complete contradiction, uh, portrayed as a hawk in the media the reality was something different.
2: Yeah, the, so the Tonkin uh, the Tonkin incident, of course, was the mm-hmm. false flag uh, that got us, helped to get us in the public support of Vietnam, which was a complete hoax. Uh, during right. uh, the 1964 presidential election, you know, I remember it very clearly, James. You know, I remember the the uh, the ad that had the little girl picking daisies and a mushroom cloud going off in the back, a nuclear bomb, and the implication was if you reelect Barry Goldwater, uh, he, he he's going to bring us to World War III. And it will all be over for us. Um, in fact, it turns out that Johnson was a major hawk as soon as he won that uh, election, right? Could you comment on that? And then we have to take a commercial break.
4: Yeah, the uh, you can still see that commercial on, this, on, on YouTube. But yeah, he started escalating the war immediately afterwards. And what people don't know is that he did not want to escalate the war. Again, it's the hidden hand. He was uh, told to escalate the war by a secret clique of advisors that were not known about by uh, the Congress or the people, uh, nicknamed the Wiseman, uh, including Dean Acheson, John J. McClay, Robert Lovett, uh, Averill Harriman, who were advising him to uh, escalate the war. Uh, then in 1968, they did an abrupt turnaround, told him the war was a mistake. They left him holding the bag, and it was his shock at that withdrawal of their support, of the elite support that caused him to announce he would not run for re-election. And, elections of 68
2: all right Uh, well i think we've covered a lot of the high points in uh, in the first chapter Uh, chapter five is titled vietnam uh, in the truth is a lonely warrior we do have to go to commercial break when we come back i want to talk about chapter six or i should say ask you to talk about chapter six titled the plan today because we want to be able to tie in all of this history with what is going on right now so don't go away folks we'll be right back with james perloff after the break
1: Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel Joint Venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Gold PLC, whole five of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. Cornerstone retains a 15% interest, financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TS
0: Welcome
2: back to Turning Hard Times Into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me James Perloff. He's back again to uh, discuss his book, Truth is a Lonely Warrior, and we in particular we want to talk about uh, Chapter 6, titled The Plan Today. Uh, We we just talked about Vietnam, and what we want to learn from Vietnam, we we focused on Vietnam because that is probably the war that most of us older guys at least remember most vividly, and that was one in which there was a major anti-war activity that sort of pushed us out of there sooner than some people would have liked. Uh, So what we want to do is try to apply... And make some sense of these wars and and what it means today and where we're going today in the economy and uh, primarily in the economy, but it certainly has implications as well for our liberties uh, and for justice for all of the people. But in any event, uh, James, uh, in Chapter 6, you talked about exporting our economy. Can you talk about how institutions like uh, GATT, uh, NAFTA, FTAA, and how they've been able, how they've been used, essentially, to destroy rather than to enhance uh, American prosperity.
4: Well, I was covering uh, the uh, GATT Treaty in 1994 for a, a national magazine, and uh, that was what got us into the World Trade Organization. And uh, that's uh, it's these trade treaties, Jay, that have caused uh, the death of American manufacturing um, uh, when I, I, they were debating the GATT Treaty in Congress, uh, they said, Don't worry, we're just going to export import uh, both. But uh, the trade deficit uh, the year after we passed the GATT Treaty shot from 75 to 103 billion. By 2007, it was up to 700 billion, our trade deficit. And uh, the, so the biggest thing we're, we're exporting is jobs. And let me just comment on why these. Uh, these uh, treaties resulted in that uh, when we passed the GATT treaty, the U- European Union was given 30 votes in the World Trade Organization. Africa was given 35 votes, and America was given one vote. So, wow. we're, we're, we're we're forced to uh, abide by regulations that other uh, countries set. And what these uh, these treaties did was to tear apart our our tariff structure and the quota structure that had. Protected what remained of American industry, I remember when I went to college there were uh, here in New England there were a lot of uh, shoe manufacturers textile manufacturers textile industry was wiped out the electronics uh, electronics industry wiped out our, our steel industry largely uh, destroyed uh, what these treaties did was to uh, bring in a tidal wave of cheap imports and I just want to comment uh, I have a, a appendix, I don't know if you've read it or not in the book it's called the myths of free trade but did the free the idea of free trade in of itself, if you've got two free countries to have free trade, is a good idea. But what what's happened is that uh, you know the old argument was that uh, in America you'd have uh, uh, a manufacturer made a product, uh, say, a sweater for twenty five dollars, and then some guy in Scotland who came up with a better manufacturing, more efficient manufacturing process, could make the same sweater for $20, Mm -hmm. and the American manufacturer would then ask Congress for a tariff, and he'd get a $10 tariff put on the Scotsman's goods, Uh and this would seem bad because it raises prices for consumers, and it punishes the Scotsman's ingenuity and protects the Americans' laziness. That's the free trade argument, but the problem is that it does not incorporate the reality of what's going on today. Goods are not made cheap just by ingenuity and efficiency in manufacturing. They're also made Cheap by slave labor, and so you've got these American companies that have gone overseas and employing Chinese workers that work all day. It's for sixty cents an hour, uh, or sometimes foreign socialist countries will uh, undercut the American manufacturing by subsidizing uh, their their goods. And you you can't expect uh, American companies to compete with slave labor or foreign government subsidies. So you do need to protect our industries. The founding fathers were avid protectionists, and uh, it was the protectionism of this country that actually, even though it's become a dirty word, uh, many conservatives have just not got the difference between uh, efficiency and the types of principles that existed in the world of uh, Adam Smith when he wrote his volume uh, many years ago and the conditions that exist today. It's very different, but it was those trade treaties that destroyed our and exported our economy.
2: Well, it, it certainly seems. I mean, that you wouldn't need to have something so so complex as these treaties, and and, the, and they're secret in nature. Uh, you could just simply reduce tariffs. Uh, both countries agree agree to reduce tariffs, and that would be one way to get free trade. I think that would be a lot simpler. But you know, speaking of uh, speaking of agreements that are done in secret, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I understand is being railroaded through by Obama now. Only some of the uh, uh, sort of labor-orientated uh, uh, legislators are against it from the Democratic side. Uh, but, but it's my understanding, James, that uh, senators are not even allowed to know what's in the thing. They have to vote for it. Uh, they, they are allowed to go and read it, but they're not allowed to take any notes. They're not allowed to take any of their assistants in to read the documents. They're not allowed to talk about what's in the documents to their constituency. Uh, as Nancy Pelosi said with regard to Obamacare, uh, we need to pass it so that we know what's in it. I mean, how ludicrous is that? And what in the world is going on in our country? I mean, it just—it just all sort of just—it doesn't make any sense until you start to believe that there's something bigger going on here than the than the concerns and cares for America among our leaders. But uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership—that's another example,
4: right? Yes, and uh, who would sign a contract uh, if they uh, weren't allowed to read it? Uh, you'd immediately if somebody said, "I want you to sign this, but you can't read it," you'd say, "Wait a minute, ho ho, I'm not going to sign that." So it's, it would be a, it's absurd for Congress to pass it without uh, reading it. But you can be sure that uh, this is the same thing I saw in '94. It's the same mix of liberals and conservatives on both sides. You know, uh, you've got uh, in, in the case of the GATT treaty, you had. Uh, uh, liberal uh, Democrats and conservative Republicans opposing it and favoring it. It's the same thing now. You've got uh, Obama favoring it, but you've got Elizabeth Warren from my state as a big liberal against it, and you've got uh, conservative Republicans in favor of it, but you've got Pat Buchanan against it, and the confusion, again, is over this principle of free trade, uh, really uh, outdated and not recognizing the conditions that in our world today. But you can. Be, one of the real problems with something like the TPP is that, number one, it's not worked out uh, by our legislators. It's worked out by these multinational corporations. And also, whenever you pass one of these things, uh, our laws, you know, under the Constitution, a a treaty becomes a supreme law of the land. Right, right. And uh, our laws uh, become subservient to the regulations of the TPP, which we don't know what it says, but, for example, food safety, product safety, things like that, which are governed by our laws, those laws can now be overruled by the regulations that we haven't even read yet.
2: Oh, absolutely. It's just uh, totally Mm -hmm. insane. Well, one, we we just have a couple of minutes left here yet, James, but uh, can you talk a little bit about the war on terror? You know, since 9-11, an increasing war on terror, everything is, how does that fit into the scheme of the Council of Foreign Relations and the move towards a one-world government?
4: Well, I I should mention, uh, just to to, uh, segue from trade, NAFTA, was intended to be turned into a North American Union exactly as the uh, common market was turned into the European Union. In fact, Uh let me just quote uh, Andrew Redding of the World Policy Institute. He said, quote, NAFTA signals the formation of a new political unit North America, with economic integration, will come political integration. Following the lead of the Europeans, North Americans should begin considering formation of a continental parliament. Unquote. That's where the, that's where they're headed with this. They want a, a North American Union. But the war on terror, uh, Robert Pastor is considered the father of the uh, North American Union. And here's what he said in the CFR's Journal of Foreign Affairs regarding the war on terror. Okay, he said, quote, security fears would serve as a catalyst for d- deeper integration that would require new structures to assure mutual security. The Department of Homeland Security should expand its mission to include continental security, a shift best achieved by incorporating Mexican and Canadian personnel into its design and operation, unquote, Robert Patterson. So, you see, what they're trying to do is to take the war on terror and incorporate that along with uh, the trade agreement with uh, our NAFTA partners into this ultimate goal of a North American Union which is only a stepping stone towards world government because as Zbigniew Brzezinski put it quote we cannot leap into world government in one quick step the precondition for genuine globalization is progressive regionalization unquote. In other words it won't get people to form a union with Europe yet a world government But you can get them to to have a stepping stone, a regional alliance, just like the EU is a regional alliance on the European continent. And eventually you use these stepping stones to get their ultimate goal of a world government, which I can assure you would be a world tyranny because you would have all power concentrated in a single government.
2: Yeah, well, there's no question about it. And the Trans-Pacific Partnership is, of course, uh, it's it's really encompassing countries from three continents, I believe. I mean, you've got Asian countries involved, you've got South American countries involved, and you've got uh, uh, Canada, America, and Mexico, the NAFTA countries. Uh, I don't know if there are European countries in that, or, and I don't think so. But but in any event, it's it's to try to, to hold off China for now, I think, to neutralize China in this battle for a one-world government, I guess. I I really, uh, there's so much more to talk about, always to talk about. One of the main Major concerns I'd like to get your opinion on. We don't have time today, but sometime in the near future. Uh, what's going on with the Trans-Pacific Partnership? The BRICS, on the one hand, seemingly competing against against the petrodollar, the Anglo-American Empire. But on the other hand, you know, we see how the United States and how under the surface, we just talked about it today in the case of Vietnam, how our leaders were making friends with the communists who we later then were supposedly at war with, but not really at war with. So I wonder, James, is to what extent the games are being played now under the table with the Chinese, with the Russians, with the BRIC countries, unbeknownst to us, so that uh, somehow a one-world government can be formed, or at least that would be the, ga- the goals of these of these people. Uh, and, and maybe we can pick up on that. Could we talk about that sometime in the future,
4: perhaps? Uh, I would love to, because that's uh, where we're headed.
2: Yeah, it's very important stuff. Well, James, we are out of time. I want to thank you very much for joining me again. We'll look to do it in the first Tuesday of, of next month. Uh, so that would be the first Tuesday of July. Thank you very much for being with me again. Uh, folks, so that is all the time we have uh, next week I'm going to be uh, with uh, we're going to have with me Richard Mayberry uh, who also has some very great great insights into uh, how to turn the kind of adversities that James was just talking about into positives for your portfolio Uh, I do want to thank our sponsors uh, as well as Tacey Trump my producer Matt Widener my engineer and all of you for listening until next week goodbye and God's blessings to you
0: Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Where infrastructure meets grade, Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Orico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pittable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it. And the project is expected to be in mineable reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake.
3: million.